We're going through the book of Ephesians, and we're working through four different series. And we're about coming to a conclusion of one of our series. One of our series is The Believer's Blessing, and um, The Believer's Blessing takes place in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And then we're going to finish chapter 3 next week, and then we'll move into The Believer's Behavior as we continue to walk through this book um, of Ephesians. But we're looking at these three chapters about The Believer's Blessings. You guys probably remember, if you guys have been here, um, what has taken place uh, about the blessings that have been handed to us. You know, we've been chosen by God. Uh, we have been adopted by God. We've been given wisdom and, and insight. We've been given redemption. We've been given um, the seal of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we've been given um, salvation. We have been given grace. And then two weeks ago, we talked about uh, we've been given the church as an extreme blessing that God has given to us. And the blessing we're going to focus on today is that uh, we have been given a conduit of Christ's glory. We are a conduit of Christ's glory, and this is a huge honor, uh, a huge blessing uh, that we have received. Now, the passage that we're going to be working on today is an outflow of two weeks ago in regards to the church. He says the church is a blessing, a huge blessing that we have, and after you have the church, this passage is pulling from the passage of the church and moving into um, not a different category, the same category, but a different dynamic. And we're going to read this passage and we'll work through the dynamic that it gives us as we are conduits of Christ's glory. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13 says this, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In regard to this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has been made known to you by the revealed Spirit to God's holy apostles and the prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to every one of the administrations of this mystery, which for ages to pass was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we, have approached, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, for they are your glory." I want to break this passage up into two different categories. What is the mystery, and what is the tent of the mystery? Uh, we want to just say right now, the mystery that they're talking about is the church. That is the mystery. So when you hear the word speaking mystery, the church is the mystery that has been revealed. But uh, number one just gives you the, the dynamic of what the church is. What is the church? The salvation of imperfect people, Jews and Gentiles, placed into one body under Christ, through the gospel. If you look all the way through the Old Testament, it has never been prophesied. There's no prophecies about the church. It's about Israel. 
And all of a sudden, when Christ came and he went to the cross and the church was born, it's a mystery that all of a sudden was revealed. It was all of a sudden revealed. There was not a whole bunch of prophecies that took place before. It was all of a sudden unfolded, this church. And what is it? An imperfect people, Jews and Gentiles. In other words, the people we talked about a couple weeks ago. Two people that shouldn't get along, get along. Two people that are completely entirely different are now the same. Brought into a new humanity is what the top of the passage said in in Ephesians chapter 3. What do you mean a new humanity? Well, you're going to bring two people that don't get along, two people that live in different cultures, two people that go two different directions, two people who have two different laws, two people who have two different worldviews, and you're going to put them with the same king, and that is Christ being the head. The same focus, the same purpose, the same home, the same worldview, the same way of looking at things, and then you're going to call them the church. And inside this church, all the social classes are going to be gone. All the racial classes are going to be gone. The pecking order is going to be gone. There's no, there's no rich or poor. This new humanity functions as one body with one heart, one soul, one mind, Christ being the head, and we understand each other. Why? Because we've been brought into the family of God. That's a mystery, the church. Ephesians 3 says this, This mystery is that, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ. Now what's interesting is it describes the church, Gentiles, heirs together, members together, made into one body, shares together of the promise. But how has all that taken place? It's taken place by three words. Through the gospel. Through the gospel. This mystery is that through this gospel, all these things have taken place and then the church has been developed. Well, we want to know what the gospel is before we get into it, because it's important to know what the gospel is before we start talking about the church. What is the gospel? Really quickly, Jesus left heaven and became a man. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is God. We'll put it that way. Jesus is God. Leaving heaven and became a man. Before Abraham was, I am. That's what Scripture says. Jesus left heaven and became a man. Jesus lived a perfect life in the midst of imperfect people. Jesus went to the cross and he died for an imperfect people. And Jesus rose again for the salvation of an imperfect people. That is the gospel. As a result of people being saved, they're brought into one family. And God is their head. And the people that know Christ as their head is then called the church. But what is the intent of this mystery? What is the intent of the church? We'll ask that question. Number two, here's the intent of the church. To make known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Now when we look at the word intent, what is other words that can fit, fit in there besides intent? Um, intent, we can say an aim, a design, an end, a goal. So what's the aim of the church? What's the design of the church? What, why was it created? Why was it formed? What's the end goal um, of the church? What's the intention of the church? What's the intention that's driving the church? What's the objective of the church? Uh, what's the purpose of the church? 
Um, now, we instantly have a, um, a response to it, and they say, well, the purpose of the church, the intention of the church, the design of the church is to go into a world and preach the gospel to all creatures, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. That is correct, but it's just a little bit incomplete. <laughs> just say it. It's a, it's a little bit incomplete. You can put something else there instead. Well, you can also say the intent of the church is to love God with your heart, with soul, strength, and mind, and love others yourself. That is completely and entirely correct, but there's a little bit more to it than just, just that piece. Well, the intent of the church is to reach the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is correct as well, but there's, there's just a, a little bit more that comes to it. And then Paul, in this passage in the entire Bible, gives you the little bit more of the intent, the purpose, the aim, the goal, the design, the objective of the church. And it's found in verse 10. His intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God was going to be proclaimed, according to this passage, to the ruler's authorities in the heavenly realms. What is the manifold wisdom of God? The word manifold means multiple. And in the, the Greek word is designed multiple colors, many different areas. And wisdom is insight. So you're going to see many different facets, many different colors, many different arrays, many different educational pieces um, of, to it, uh, of it. And the church is going to proclaim that to who? <laughs> According to this passage, the rulers, the authorities, and to the heavenly realms. Now you can completely ask, well, what are you talking about? So um, I just want to give you a little theology lesson that you know, I learned in, in seminary in regards to the attributes of God. When you look at the attributes of God, the attributes of God are broken into two different sections. There's incommunicable attributes, and then there's communicable attributes. I know they're big words, but I'll tell you that it's easy to understand once I start, once I start talking. Incommunicable attributes. What's an incommunicable attribute? An incommunicable attribute is that God is eternal. Now, incommunicable means that we don't share that. We can't understand that. It's something that, it's, that you can't even communicate. I was created. So you start talking about God is eternal. It's like, how could he never have a beginning? It literally does not fit into my mind. I mean, it just, it just doesn't fit. I mean, we can say, oh yeah, I understand God is eternal, but we can't grasp it. We can't, we can't fathom it. We can't come to a conclusion of it. And when I preach, we can preach God's eternal, but that's just about all I can say because I can't give you the nuts and bolts <laughs> because you don't understand the nuts and bolts and I don't understand the nuts and bolts. We just know this is an attribute of God. He's eternal. Incommunicable. Another incommunicable attribute is that he's omnipresent. Means that he's present everywhere. Well, let me explain that. (laughs) I can't, (laughs) except he's present everywhere. We can't give you the nuts and bolts of it. Omnipotent. He's ultimate power, complete power. But give me all the dynamics of this power that God has in every single facet in this entire universe. I can't. I I can't even explain it. The reason why it's beyond your mind is beyond my mind. The Bible just mentions it. He's omniscient. It's incommunicable attribute saying it is very difficult to communicate that God is all-knowing because we cannot grasp 
how some being can be all-knowing. Our mind is too feeble. Our mind is not smart enough. Our mind cannot understand it, but Scripture speaks of it, and as Scripture speaks of it, we worship God under these attributes. God is sovereign. It's an incommunicable attribute. What does it mean? That means God is completely and entirely in control. Now, what is the greatest argument that Christians have in regards to doctrine? Sovereignty of God. Why are we arguing about the sovereignty of God? We're speaking about something that's beyond our mind, because remember what an incommunicable attribute is, is something that's beyond our mind. It's beyond our head. So God says, I'm sovereign, but since it doesn't fit in our mind, it doesn't fit in our calculations, we argue about it. Well, this is what it really does mean. Does it mean it don't have a choice? I mean, so we get in arguments about it. Well, literally, it's just talking that's beyond our mind. It's an attribute that God has that we can't fathom. We can't, we can't just grab a hold of. We can't just understand to the fullness and the depths of it. These attributes are split in half, incommunicable, and then communicable. And what's a communicable attribute? It's an attribute that, um, that we share. It's an attribute that, from God that he can communicate to us very clearly. Let me give you a list of them. God is love. God is mercy. God is grace. He's faithful. God is righteous. God is just. Oh, all of a sudden, we're like, oh, I understand. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, good, we've got scripture. Let me give you all the corners of love. Let me give you all the corners of justice. Let me give you all the corners of righteous, because now we're starting to speak on a human, a human language. And then we can do entire sermons on love and entire sermons on grace and entire sermons on, on mercy. And we can understand the nuances of the directions. We can understand the dynamics and everybody's tracking. The reason why is because it's, it's not specifically beyond our head. It's not beyond our head. We're not denying the incommunicable attributes, but we do feed upon the communicable attributes because they make, they make sense to us. Let me ask you a question. Without this world, the church, or the cross, could God communicate communicable attributes? Without this world, the church, the cross, our existence, this planet's existence, can God communicate communicable attributes? In other words, God is love. If this world never took place and the church was never put together and the cross never happened, can God communicate love to like his angels? Because remember, all these angels are looking at this. Can God communicate love to his angels? It's just a question. And maybe we can say, yeah, in some forms. But first John says, I am love and this is what love is. Christ laid down his life for us. Oh my goodness, we just got a definition of love. We just got a definition of love. Inside of love, there's sacrifice. But if this planet never existed, the cross never existed, the church never existed, none of this ever existed, would we get the dynamics of that communicable attribute, love? God is a gracious God. Would we understand, or would the heavens understand, the angels understand, a communicable attribute of being gracious if this world never happened, the cross never happened, if the church never happened? Let's put it this way. If I gave each person $100 when you guys walked out the door and said, I just want you to know, I, I thank you for coming to church. Here's 100 bucks. 
Um, you guys would look at me as a gracious pastor. You guys, that pastor is so gracious. There's a couple hundred people in the room and he gave $100 a piece. What a nice guy. But what if I was a trillionaire and I gave you 100 bucks? You guys would walk out the door with that 100 bucks and say, boy, that guy's a cheapskate. <laughs> that guy, man, he, he could have given us so much money. He gives us 100 bucks a piece. That is, what a, a ripoff. See, you can't communicate the depths of it until you understand the sacrifice that went literally behind it. You can't communicate the depths of it until you see the sacrifice that has come behind it. So here we have communicable attributes that the church, that the church proclaims, that the church shouts out, that the church sings about, that the church loves and all the angels in the heavens and all the rulers and all the authorities are looking at it and going, I am learning something that I've never learned before. I cannot believe what that church is doing as a result of God leaving heaven. Think it from an angel's perspective. God leaving heaven. Do you think the angels would react a little bit? I mean, think about it. They worship God in his holiness and his majesty and his beauty and his glory. And all of a sudden he's leaving heaven. He's like, where are you going, God? <laughs> where are you going? He's doing what? He's going to go down and confine himself to be a man? Do you know what that means? That means he's going to need to use the bathroom. I mean, it, it means that he's going to be getting sick. It means that he's going to go into the filth of the dust that is on the road and is going into his nostrils. The angels are looking. He's going to do what? Leave heaven and he's going to become a man, and then the men, the people that he goes to, doesn't even hardly put a roof over his head. He's practically homeless. I mean, the angels are watching him. They're watching him. They're observing him. All the authorities in heaven are observing him, and they're saying, this is absolutely crazy. This is God. This is God. He leaves heaven. He comes to earth. He's being a man, and, he, and, the, and the people that he's living with won't even give him a home, and then he does what? He dies? <laughs> Does God die? God, the one that they worship, all of a sudden goes to this cross, and the men, the people that put him on the cross, is the people, the men, that he's going to bring salvation to. I mean, think of the angels looking at that saying, What in the world is going on? What has taken place? And then God, their God, which is our God, went into the grave, buried into a dark grave. Three days later, he rose again. He forgives the world of their sins. I mean, what's the perspective of the angels observing that? The angels are looking upon it, and they're getting educated like crazy. Let's just put this in perspective. Number three, the angels stand in stark amazement at what God did for the church. The angels stand in stark amazement of what God did for the church. When you look up to space, you see a lot of stars. In fact, I just want to show you a, um, show you a picture of a galaxy. And this is a picture of a galaxy. And if you study galaxies, galaxies contains, you know, our Milky Way galaxy contains 200 billion stars in it. And about 100,000 light years wide. I mean, it just explained the, the, the dynamics of a galaxy. The sun orbits a galaxy core at 240 million years. Every 240 million years that it has taken place. So that is just a galaxy, and that's absolutely extreme. 
But in our logical studies in astronomy, we have come to the conclusion that there is somewhere between 200 billion to 2 trillion galaxies. So you can see, oh my goodness, these galaxies are absolutely huge. And then our study has brought us to the point that there's 200 billion of them, maybe. There could be like 2 trillion. Why didn't they say 6 trillion? <laughs> they don't know. It's obviously they don't know. 200 billion to 2 trillion is, is, a, is just a rough estimate, and they've given us room for error, definitely room for error. But they can in, immediately say, well, I don't know exactly you know, how many galaxies there are. Why? Because your mind isn't big enough to fathom it. And all the sources that you have to try to get it put together, to get to the depths of the universe that is creation, you cannot get to. So let's look at another picture. Here's some stars. A whole bunch of stars. What are these stars proclaiming? These stars are proclaiming God's incommunicable attributes. He's omnipresent. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And when we look at these stars, we're like, oh my goodness, God is absolutely huge. So when I read these incommunicable attributes, I'm blown away. But let me ask you a question. What star? I want you guys to point it out. What star? Because there's only one that communicates God's communicable attributes. Which one is it? Oh my goodness, we're standing on it. (laughs) We're standing on it. This is it. This is right here. This is ground zero where God displays his love, his grace. How much more has he displayed his love? I don't know, the creation of him. His love, his grace, his beauty, his faithfulness, his righteousness. And it's all taking place right here. This is ground zero. But let's even make it a little bit smaller. How are we going to make it smaller? If you look at my house, I have seven acres and I have cows. And I live close to a railroad track. And as I live close to a railroad track, I, whenever they pull out a whole bunch of railroad ties to replace them, they leave them along the side. Well, I always talk to the people and I say, hey, can I steal some railroad ties? So I go over there and I steal a whole bunch of steel. I asked them. I didn't steal. I picked up the railroad ties. I put them. So I have over 150 to 200 railroad ties in my yard. Now, they're all dug. i <laughs> just let you know. They're all infinite. Not all of them. I still, got, I still got about 80 to do. But they're still, they're all dug all the way around the pasture and that's where my fence is at. And so how big is a railroad tie? A railroad tie is 12 inches by 8 inches. That's how big a railroad tie is. Now, now how do I explain that in a picture? I'll explain it in a picture. Because whenever I dug my railroad ties, my kids, when they're little children, would follow me around and say, hey, Daddy, put us in the hole. So that's a hole that is 8 inches by 12 inches, and my daughters just love to go in the hole. Well, I think the daughter in the back, like, watch that daughter go into the hole. But you can see that it's not child abuse, because look at the next picture. She is smiling and say, hey, Daddy, I'm in the hole. This is so great. And we go, Mom, go find your daughter. And she's like, can't find my daughter. Then they find her in a hole. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Well, let's talk about another hole. Let's go to the next slide. Ground zero. Eight inches by 12 inches. Ground zero that proclaims the communicable attributes of God. That cross proclaims absolutely everything. Yes, his life proclaims it, but that cross is the amazing climax of it. And it does not proclaim only the communicable attributes to us as humans. It com- 
it, it proclaims the communicable attributes to all the heavenly beings. Every living being that's ever existed is looking at that cross, and the proclamation of who God is is all of a sudden displayed as love comes alive, as righteousness comes alive, as grace comes alive, as mercy comes alive. What's it doing? Declaring the personality of our King of Kings, the Lord of Lord, all on that one 12-inch by 8-inch hole. First Peter 1 says this, concerning this salvation, concerning this salvation we received, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, and as they were searching, even the angels longed to look into these things. They are shocked. The angels are shocked on what God did because they get to know God more by the cross than they ever known before. They got to see his personality. They got to see who he was. Charles Spurgeon says this, angels desire to look into the, ma- the mystery of human hearts, how they've fallen, how they're regenerated, how they're preserved, and how they are sanctified, how they are strengthened, and how they are taught, how they are perfected. There's a lot of stars out there. But there's only focus, and I know this is a planet, so just give me a little bit of grace. A lot of stars out there, but all the focus in the heavens is located on this one. <laughs> is located on this. In fact, you can say, oh, goodness, we got to Mars. We're on, well, we got to the moon, now we got to Mars. We're on planet number three. This is really, really cool, and maybe we can find life in planet. Well, is there life on other planets? How can there be life on planets if there's a cross on this one? The cross is proclaiming the incommunicable attributes of God and putting Satan in his place, putting demons in his place, and putting the angels in his place. And it's all happening literally right here. And we're being watched very closely. I want to continue to look at this from the angel's perspective because if we look at it from the angel's perspective, we get a picture of what's going on. Number A, as a result of the gospel, the angels see God in a brand new light. Angels are looking at the cross of Christ. They're looking at the life of Christ, and they're looking how the church has responded to it and how the church is saved by it. And a whole lot of information is coming their way. We can talk. We can say it's literally seminary to the angels. Here's on one. It says this: In the beginning was the Word. Now, what is the word in Greek? This word is logos. Now, we just say, "Oh, yeah, it's a word. It's something you spoke." But when John was speaking to those back in this day, and he said, in the beginning was the logos, there was a shock to people. And the reason why there's a shock to people, because logos means literally logic. You can say, in the beginning was logic. In other words, understanding over everything. In the beginning was logic. And the logic was with God, and the logic was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, explaining the logic. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, all the angels are following pretty good, but then all of a sudden you hit verse 14. And then all of a sudden, the logic became flesh. All of a sudden, the word became flesh. There's a new law, there's a, there is a new kind of logic that was revealed specifically at the cross. A brand spanking new kind of logic that was revealed. First Timothy says, God was manifested in the flesh, 
justified in the spirit, seen by angels. We've got to say seen by angels because they're, they're in this classroom too. Seen by the angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on the world, and received up to glory. Got to say the angels because the angels and all the heavenly beings and all the heavenly authorities, all of them, Satan included, all of them are looking down and they're looking at this cross and they say, this is an amazing seminary class that has never been taught before. Let it be. As a result of the gospel, the angels receive a different kind of king, a God-man. Seems like everything has changed after the 6,000 years of existence on this planet. It's like everything has changed. Well, how has is, how is everything changed? Well, if you look at it from the angel's perspective, who is their God? Who is their king? Who is their Lord? Their God is the Father, their God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit. It is the Trinity. They are the angel's masters. But after redemption, something else takes place. After redemption, something takes place with the angels. Look at Colossians. It mentions it. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In Christ, the fullness of deity, the fullness of God lives, and how does it live? In bodily form, and you have been given the fullness of Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. God is not only God over the angels, Jesus is a God-man over the angels. Their new ruler is a man. And his name is Jesus Christ. Everything has changed as a result of this world existing, as a result of, this, of the cross taking place. Philippians 2 says this, So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every, and those who are in, oh, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Oh, I quoted it and said it wrong. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Look at those underlined words. I want to make sure that everybody knows this. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. I will say, in heaven. You know, the writer, the author, Paul, is saying, every knee will bow in heaven. Every angel will bow in heaven and on earth. Yes, on earth. All of us, every human being, will bow. And then those under the earth, what's the, those under the earth, referring to those in hell. Everybody will bow, and who will they bow to? And who will they confess to? To Jesus Christ as Lord, to the glory specifically of the Father. Let us see, as a result of the gospel, the angels have an increased intimacy with God. <coughs> we get out of cough here. Intimacy, what's Intimacy. Um, intimacy is to be known. That's just, that's what the word intimacy means. Um, in your marriage, um, if you're intimate, you're um, emotionally known. Um, you're physically known. That's what's taking place. You are just known. That's what sexual intimacy is, is, is being known. So intimacy is being known. Um, again, during the seminary class that the angels are receiving, it's interesting as they're watching Jesus, and here's a, here's a, um, or watching God, Here's a Hebrews 2.9 that explains a, a transfer that is happening right in front of their eyes that gives them an understanding that is actually really huge. We see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels. This is the word. We see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. A little lower than the angels. They got a view of God in a way that they never got a view of God before. Because if you go 
lower than the angels, not lower in authority, but if you go lower in the angels, lower in, in confinement, lower in, in understanding, lower in being restrained to a body, lower in being restricted, that's what lower means. If you go under that, you are able to see what has taken place. And they are able to see the God that they proclaim, holy, 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 majestic, and absolute, full of glory. They get to see him a lot more clearly than they've ever seen him before. Intimacy takes place. Being known takes place even to the angels, just for God literally having intimacy completely and entirely with us. Number four, Satan stands in utter disgust when he found out that his plan to kill Jesus was God's plan to unfold the manifold wisdom of God. Satan is obsessed with killing Jesus. He didn't only want to kill Jesus. He wanted to display Jesus as a weakling. He wanted to humiliate Jesus. In fact, a, a good idea that Satan would come up with is, boy, if I could get Jesus on a cross, because if I get Jesus on the cross, he's literally dying a criminal's death. He's half naked. Humility is going to be there. The people that, that, that should love him are spitting on him. The people that should love him are putting nails into his hands. In Satan's mind, you know, this is a really good idea because anybody who is on that cross has no business to ever be worshipped because this is an absolute display of mockery. And if I can get the King of kings and Lord of lords on that cross, I've completed my task. And I believe that for three days, Satan believed that he completed his task. But little did he know, until after Jesus rose, Satan was played. 1 Corinthians gives us this. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age or the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God presented before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood for if they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord. Oh my goodness, Satan is saying, I just crucified the Lord, and as a result, the manifold wisdom of God has been proclaimed everywhere. His love, his grace, his mercy, his heart, his being, everybody knows now exactly who God is. And that's why he's saying, ah, we shouldn't have killed him. He used the sin of man to display his character, to display his glory, to display his beauty. And it was all done at the cross. Number five, as a church, we stand in the middle of the largest amphitheater that has ever existed for the purpose of proclaiming the glory of God to every living being. The title of the sermon is that we are a conduit of Christ's glory. He built the church, and he died for the church for the purpose of displaying and proclaiming who he is. And the whole world is watching. Now, we are a people that are in the middle of this, and as we are in the middle of this, there's a lot of things that take place in this world. Pain takes place in this world. Hurt takes place in this world. Disappointment takes place in this world. But one thing we do on this world that we really enjoy is we like to go to um, football games. We like to go to baseball games. And back then, before they had football, before they had baseball, they had gladiator games. 
They'd all sit there in the large, large gladiator games, and they'd, and they'd watch something take place. They'd watch two things take place. The things that they'd watch take place, and I don't know, it's just our mind that we just love it. We just love to watch the same thing that football proclaims, the same thing that gladiator games proclaim. We love to watch pain and glory. <laughs> you just do. Because if there's no pain, there's no glory. And so when you watch a football game and you see somebody get smacked and hit, that guy that just stands up who hits someone just kind of broadens his chest. The whole fans erupt, and you're going, oh, my goodness. I mean, this is just in our head. If I could hit like him, that would have been so cool. And then you watch the guy go smacking on the ground. And as he goes smacking on the ground, he gets up, and he's like, oh, my goodness, I was hit, but I'm standing firm. I'm not hurt. And so all of a sudden, glory is given to the one that hit. Glory is given to the one that not hit. And the whole fans are cheering. We love it. Pain and glory are the two things that we absolutely love. Watch Paul speak through this entire chapter or through this entire passage and just watch what takes place with the verbiage that he uses and the words he uses. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner, he's just describing himself. I'm a prisoner. This reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, I became a servant of the gospel. I am less than the least of the people. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past has been hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, according to the eternal purpose which is accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And then there's a verse that just doesn't fit. 13. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, for they are your glory. <laughs> Why did he put that verse in there? I mean, at the beginning, he says, I'm a prisoner. I'm a servant. I'm less than the least. And then at the end, he says, this is what I have. In the middle, he says, this is what I have. It's beautiful. And then he says, oh, by the way, I ask you, don't be discouraged because of my suffering. Why? Yeah, because it's no big deal. Why? Because I'm on a football field <laughs> where everybody is watching. Except it's not really a football field. It's, it's more like a gladiator. No, 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 there's not enough people in the gladiator. No, where am I at, as Paul is thinking? Here's a picture that shows a little bit where Paul might have been thinking of where he is at. Paul says, oh my goodness, I'm on the one planet with Jerusalem being right there. I don't know if it's right there, but it might be right there with a 12-inch post hole by eight that stands our God who is communicating the communicable attributes to not only this planet the entire universe is absolutely watching this planet take place, and they're all under education, all under education of who God is and what has he done, and he, they are in complete, entire shock. And his attitude is, who cares if I get hurt? <laughs> who cares if I get hurt? Just like the football player. It's okay. I am in an arena where all the angels are watching I'm in an arena where all the people are watching. In fact, I get to write the book. <laughs> this is Paul speaking, of course, not me. I get to write the book that gets to proclaim the glory of God at this cross, under this gospel. Therefore, my words are, <laughs> I rejoice in my trials. 
in tribulations. It's okay. I'm in the arena. Everybody's watching. Everybody's rejoicing. It's for his glory. I can, I can do it. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That, that's a, the verbiage that he used, and that's where he gets the verbiage that he uses it. I saw a, a, a sign, I think it was on Facebook, it was a model that said, God is bigger than your problem. That is a true statement. But it's a statement personally that won't help me. <laughs> I need to know, God, that I'm in an arena. (laughs) I need to know that my life makes a difference. I need to know that the gospel that I have on my tongue, where God left heaven and he came to earth and he died for a human being and he he went to the cross, died, and he rose again, that that gospel proclaims God to an entire universe that has literally changed heaven forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And as I proclaim it, everybody that looks at me, will say, if it changed the eternal universe in heaven ever and ever and ever, has it changed you, Mike? You know, that's what, that's pulled back to me of the way I think. I need to know that we have to be, that our life matters, and the gospel that we have changes absolutely everything that we can think about. This world has lasted for 6,000 years, roughly. I mean, we don't know the exact. My life is going to last for 60, 70, 80 um, years, you know, if you're Dave Byer, you, you can la- live to 110. I think you're 110, aren't you, Dave? Yeah, yeah, you're 110, 120, 140. <laughs> Sorry, I just got to pick on you, Dave, a little bit. However long it lasts, it's rich. It's good if that gospel is at the forefront. God, we just thank you so much that we can be a conduit of your glory. Not only your glory, God, to this world and the people that are around us, but glory to the heavens. Glory to the angels, (laughs) Uh, a thorn in Satan's flesh. Thank you, God, that we can speak this beautiful gospel to proclaim to the world who you are. And God, it's fun to think about angels sitting in seminary class watching us, watching what you did and watching us respond to it and how we speak. We just pray, God, that it will be on the forefront of our mind, the one source that drives our life. Don't let anything else drive our life. Let it drive our life, God as we live in this world. This world is too short to waste our opportunity to do so. We just pray that we will. In Christ's name, amen.